What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. In Silicon Valley, even today, like there's a religion of being data-driven. You're supposed to look at data for every major decision. Uh, intuitions are bad. Even as a mathematician, I actually think data is actually often inaccurate and it doesn't capture the full picture. So I wanted to do something more like intuition-oriented, more design-oriented. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Ligorio-Chafkin. Today's episode, Instinct versus Data. It is a very special time of the year here at Inc. Magazine. It's Inc. 5000 season, and we've just announced the 2021 list of the fastest growing companies in the United States. These are 5,000 companies, large and small, in every imaginable industry. And the thing that unites them is that over the past three years, they have attained extraordinarily fast growth in revenue. Our guest today has earned a very rare spot right near the top of the list. His company, which brought in more than $45 million in revenue in 2020 and continued to grow strong even during the pandemic, attained a growth rate of 39,734% over the past three years. The company is Carbon Health, and it's seeking to fix a broken system in healthcare. It does everything from software to clinics to now mass vaccination sites. It's creating solutions that aim to fix a lack of transparency in medical care, disparities in access, and costs through its clinic model. It's the second fastest growing company in the country. And its founder's name, and my guest today, is Aaron Bali. This isn't his first time starting a super fast growing business. Before Carbon, a decade before, he, as a recent immigrant to the United States, saw a broken education system. And as much education went online, he thought he could do that better. He founded education tech startup Udemy. Aaron's story is fascinating. He was inspired to turn his attention to healthcare and fix the messy system through which doctors communicate, bill, and are paid by the aftermath of a stroke his mother had. Turns out, his parents may have been some inspiration to him as well long before he decided to take on America's broken healthcare system, when he was merely trying to make a dent in democratizing trade and hobbyist education. Originally from a rural farming village in the Turkish mountains, Aaron's parents were teachers and activists. Growing up there, I, I always had this passion for how there's like talent everywhere in the world, which are usually kind of wasted because of the lack of opportunities. Um, I think me working on those fields were, were, were obvious, but I think, but the whole concept of entrepreneurship didn't come to me until I was much older. So your parents were always helping people, right? As teachers, did you, you felt that drive first and foremost? Yes. And they were very idealist people. So they were kind of progressive, like political activists as well. So that was really what made the childhood hard. So like military crews usually don't want, don't like progressive movements. So my, my parents were union leaders. So yeah, that was already like, they always had passion towards how they can like make life better for people, for most working people. And in a way, so I shared it, that kind of upbringing, like the passion towards accessibility, but with a slightly different twist. So I, I chose the technology route as a way to improve lives for people, but versus uh, there's more of like a political stance there. Before we talk about your latest company, you've actually founded many companies. So so what did drive you to entrepreneurship once once you got there in your life? I think there were different phases. So like after I grew up, I studied computer science mathematics. The first thing I, I realized was like I like building things. First year in college, I built this browser-based music player, which was in 2001. 
uh, that was way earlier than kind of any other kind of browser-based like online music player. So I was just trying to build something where I can listen to music anywhere because I did not own a like personal computer that are, that was portable. So I was mostly working in university labs. Like I was just usually camp in the lab and until 3 a.m. in the morning and then go home. So and the idea of having a browser-based application was very interesting. And that was 2001. Wow. So like kind of a combination of like iTunes and uh, Spotify and um, and uh, YouTube. <laughs> on the browser was yeah. not anybody yeah. had thought about doing. So that was the first time I kind of had this taste of like building something is fun. And it was, it ended up becoming very viral among the students in the college. That was very fun. But at that point in, in Turkey, I, I had no idea that this, this websites or two software people built can become actual businesses. Like even when I looked at something like Google, for a long time, I thought this was somebody's kind of toy project. So the idea that you, this could be a way you can do like make a living was not like obvious to me in, from Turkey in early 2000s. And eventually I realized these are indeed like companies and they can become carriers. And the first company I built uh, started was in Turkey where I was inspired by how like there were all those mil- hundreds of millions of people who just did not have access to change their lives. And I started what became Udemy eventually in Turkey. Uh, that specific company didn't become successful, but it was a live education platform so that that would allow anybody to teach online uh, in Turkey. So th- that was, like, I would say, like in 2005 was the first time I realized, okay, like this can be more than just toy projects. So when you were starting Udemy, in Turkey, what was what was the light bulb moment that caused you to say, "Ah, this is a business. Ah, I'm going to move to Silicon Valley." We built uh, what we launched one company, which is not Udemy. It was technically a different company, a slightly different idea, but it was the same ambition. The ambition was if we could enable all the people around the world to share their knowledge, uh, it could be a transformational company. So, but in Turkey, it was a live education platform. In a way, like I was looking at companies like YouTube and Blogger, which created platforms that disrupted publishing and even writing online. So my thought was somebody should do the same thing for education. Uh, there are millions of experts in the world. If given, given the tools, they would actually like to share their knowledge. And this idea of this becoming a company and a real sustainable thing was big for me. But at that point in Turkey, I had no understanding of startups and companies and fundraising like those those concepts were like foreign to me but i just had started watching silicon valley in more detail so the first company didn't work out we we made a lot of mistakes and uh, we spent two years launching the product and we were trying very conservative and and most importantly turkey did not have an ecosystem that gets that could allow uh, companies like this at back in 2005, 2006, it was just right these days. Now there's an ecosystem in Turkey, but that wasn't back then. I think coming to Silicon Valley, like I came to Silicon Valley with a lot of actually hopes and dreams. So, because from the outside, it felt like if you're in Silicon Valley, there's unlimited funding. VCs will kind of meet you in the airport with bags of money. So <laughs> In a way, like it, it, I realized it wasn't like as easy as it looked from the outside. So um, it was a very long period of like even getting the company up and running. I mean, we were on work visas. We were not even technically legally allowed to start a company. So there was a, just like a three, four year old like struggling and trying to stay here. And visas are always a challenge. And so it wasn't like a moment where it felt like, okay, this is working. It was really three, four years of not even knowing whether this will ever be like a real company. Yeah. So even after you moved to Silicon Valley, you didn't feel like you had your foot in the door. You didn't feel like you had a seat at the table. First of all, I had to work at, at another company full-time. Right. So I was... Uh-huh. You took a regular job at another company. Exactly. The story is we had launched a live, live education platform in Turkey, which didn't become a successful company. And we had to shut it down. And then uh, there was a startup in Silicon Valley called Speeddate. They were trying to launch a live dating application with video. So they saw what we had done at at Novent, the original president company before Udemy. They asked me to come to Silicon Valley and really take just be on the video dating application. So we converted the video teaching platform 
live teaching platform to a live video dating platform, which became successful as a company. I, I was not a founder, but I was really one of the first like two employees there. I assume that became, became a somewhat successful company, but there was at least three years before I could, could restart Udemy idea in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that also like a, a punchline to one of those Silicon Valley jokes about pivoting to a dating site? <laughs> Well, you've done it. Um, so you've been there, done it. And then Udemy, once you focused on it around 2010, um, when you restarted the concept, I feel like there was this kind of boom happening. It was it was like something in the water, you know, Khan Academy and Skillshare and Coursera would be getting going soon. And and people thought online education really, really had a promise. What was the first couple of years of that journey like for you? What was the biggest challenge? When we started Udemy, Education was not a hot industry. It was it was considered a, like, like a blacklisted industry because between 2000 and 2009, a lot of investments had in education had completely like gone to zero. So it was not a, a place anybody wanted to invest. Especially common thinking between venture capitalists was, was that nobody would ever pay or spend money to learn a skill unless there's a diploma attached to it. So the assumption was that the only accredited like for-profit universities were, were, well, that was really the only reasonable business model. So it was really like an uncool industry. Khan Academy existed as a nonprofit, so people donated money for that, but that was not a company. I mean, it's still not a company. Uh, so that was seen as a, like a nice, like free content library. And like the, the suggestion that this could ever monetize was really kind of considered like a contrarian opinion. Uh, so even when we started, we were not really sure that there was like a way to actually monetize this. I think end of 2011 is when things shifted. So we got somewhat lucky in terms of timing because Stanford launched these two online courses called for machine learning. And they were taught by Sebastian Throne, who was is the founder of Udesti, and then Andrew Ng and Daphne Kohler, who was who later became the founders of Coursera. And and really, honestly, those two companies really pop popularized the industry. So they were doing something very different than what Udemy was doing. So it was all about academic education and higher education from Stanford and, and top uh, elite colleges, versus we were focused on. Uh, more pragmatic skill-based courses, uh, but I would say like they definitely helped popularize the industry. And then all of a sudden, there was a huge boom of uh, education companies between 2012 to 2014, 15. Like, but then at that point, like we were early enough so that by the time education became hot, we already had momentum going, and we were not the sexiest company. I would say like we we definitely did not get the most press. Like maybe we were there were like ten companies which got a lot more press than Udemy. We just were growing twenty percent every month for five years. So we never got the hype that other companies got. But like year over year, like Udemy became the largest company of all of them. So uh, it was just a kind of matter of like. We had a net. We have a network effect-based business, which just grew and grew, and like the, the larger it was, the stronger it became. Yeah, yeah, slow and steady. Um, well, it's not exactly slow, but but steady at least. Um, did, was that your strategy from the from the get-go, or is it, it was is it just how it happened? Uh, honestly, that was the strategy because the, the toughest thing I had to do at Udemy was not getting distracted, because that was a time where. These academic uh, elite university courses, they were like, they, they were called MOOCs, like massive online open courseware. They were so hyped. Uh, you would see, like, I mean, at that time, Coursera got probably more press than, like, I don't know, Google like did like in those days, right? I believe the longer term, bigger idea was like letting everybody teach courses. And yes, there are people who want to learn machine learning from Stanford professors, but there were a lot more people who wanted to learn some like some amount of development to make a website for the coffee shop in the corner, or they had to learn Excel skills so that they can take their first like white collar job. So I thought that like more simple, more pragmatic, lifelong learning, skill learning was a much bigger industry, even though in Silicon Valley, it was not like, it wasn't as visible as an idea in Silicon Valley. So we were not surprised that it was growing, but it was growing 20% every month and it just didn't get investor attention for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, did you have trouble raising money? Was that the one of the biggest challenges? No. Yeah, we definitely. I mean, yeah. you know, we were immigrant entrepreneurs. 
I had a very heavy accent. I, I still do have some, but we did not really know anybody. So like, despite like our growth being so much faster, like we had to accept like much lower valuations than like the founders who are just getting like raising seed money, like without starting anything, which were like five times higher valuation than our valuations, right? We had to accept whatever we can get. So um, it was definitely challenging until until the company, I think 2013, 14, like the like when you grow 20% month on month for four years, the numbers starts become really large. And at one point, like like the just numbers, like the growth by itself was kind of enough to convince any investors. That's great. Looking back at at those years, what do you wish you had done differently? When I started Udemy, I I honestly didn't know like have enough of an understanding of startups and managing like people and company culture. So I tried to go along with what the common practices was for pretty much every major decision, right? That there's people decision, culture decision. There were things where I in, instinctively like felt differently, but I decided to just like kind of bring parents to the company and just ask the gray hair folks like what, what we should be doing in every major decision. And maybe in, in that like time, maybe that was the right decision. But one of the things I changed, for example, in a second company, honestly, part of the reason I started a second company was there's a more authentic company I wanted to start, which didn't necessarily agree with like how things are done. As an example, in Silicon Valley, even to date, like there's a religion of being data-driven. You're supposed to look at data for every major decision. Uh, intuitions are bad. Even as a mathematician, I actually think data is actually often inaccurate and it doesn't capture the full picture. So I wanted to do something more like intuition-oriented, more design-oriented. So a second company was like opportunity for me to be more authentic. But at Udemy, it was, I just mainly went with best practices everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I rarely hear mathematicians saying data is overrated. <laughs> Data is completely overrated. It is like one of the 10 things I look at, but it's not. Sure, (laughs) sure, sure, sure. No, that's great. So at some point you, you decided it's time to move on. I have more ideas. I have, I have more important things that I need to accomplish. Um, And, and that took the form of another company. Can you talk about the sort of life events that led you to start Carbon? So before even I planned on starting another company, I, in 2013, my mom had this completely unexplained stroke, and I had to take a couple months off my my CEO job and went back to Turkey. Uh, my older sister, Abram, is a physician, so she lined up all those different specialists to understand what was happening. There's no sad story here. So eventually, uh, one of the neurologists diagnosed this fairly rare disease called neuropsychosis, where her like immune system was attacking her neural system which temporarily causes stroke. So, but she was able to recover mostly from that. But so in that, like, but it was still like a long period of like uncertainty. I was looking at, like I was printing thousands of pages of documents from different doctors, uh, doctor visits and the lab results and your DVDs of PET scans and MRIs and going from doctor to doctor. I first made the observation that the, the, the tooling that doctors use were using were not really designed for them. It was just like, it just didn't match how they thought about healthcare and medical records. Because, and my observation was, every doctor would like look at all those pages, write two words in their notebook, okay? And then just look at all the pages, write two more words. And I asked my sister, I said, like, what are they doing? And she said, they're making a chronology of their case. And I was like, why isn't it formatted as a chronology? Like if that's how all the doctors are looking at medical records. So I started getting some like, like insights about how doctors look at things. I started looking at uh, journals where doc physicians were sharing complex medical cases with each other. I, I, my sister shared some of the presentations she made where she would like share cases. And I realized like there's a particular version way doctors communicate data and it looked nothing like how the actual software worked. I had this one inkling in my mind that somebody should redesign the, the, the platform, the tools for doctors. Like, and this is one of the most scarce resources of any country on earth. And we are wasting like two thirds of their probably time and effort in like with the tools or the systems, which just doesn't make sense for them. 
I didn't have an idea about like starting a company. And I would say healthcare is a very scary field to get into. I made some sketches back in that day, but I just left it somewhere and I just kind of went back to Udemy, continued to be a CEO. And at one point at Udemy, we, like I and the board, like we generally decided that uh, we should hire an experienced CEO to take the company to the next step. So, and that was the that was the playbook back in early 2000s, right? So you'd a founder would start a company. Eventually, when the company is growing fast, you'd bring in an experienced CEO to take it the company public and next steps. So I think that playbook has changed since then, but that that used to be the playbook. Yeah, um, now they're just forced out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like exactly. So, but 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 right these days, there's a lot more of a. Like uh, like investment towards like founding CEOs, right? Sure. The, the whole like product driven technical founding CEO was not was a no go like back in 2000, 2010 even. But nowadays, like that's what a lot of investors are looking for because a lot of founding CEOs have been extremely successful. That was the thing. But I was also like thinking about okay, like what what would I start next? And this whole idea of like healthcare tools for doctors. And then the other part was. I was looking at all those healthcare companies uh, which had technology, and I was really disappointed. They disappointed that they all were trying to become healthcare provider for uh, Google employees. Like ton of them, they all at, kind of targeted this young, affluent, kind of high income patient populations. Usually, they sold through like the employers as some kind of like high end benefits, but I didn't even see a single credible attempt which would have which had technology to make healthcare better for just an average teacher, average retail employee in this country. That was both disappointing that like nobody was even attempting to change mass market US healthcare access. But also I'm also a savvy entrepreneur. Like I realized there's a massive opportunity here. Like if somebody can crack the code and provide an amazing healthcare experience in a way that doesn't cost any more than how much healthcare costs today, it could be one of the largest companies in the world. Like the, I, I just got so excited about the opportunities, like so large here. So it's just, it just dwarfs almost any other industry. And really the fact that I always had the, the insight that doctors had horrible tools and healthcare experience we know is really bad for average person. And United States spends already a ton of money in healthcare. So that kind of told me, if somebody made the tools better and designed the system better, we don't need, even need to increase the cost. We're already spending way too much money on healthcare delivery. We, sh- we should be able to create a 10 times better experience without increasing the cost even at, even a dollar. That was the, all the insight I needed. So I decided, to, okay, like this is too big and this is not easy. So I cannot just give like, like make an angel investment to another founder to get this done. So I have to just work on just myself for like 10, 10, 20 years. Well, where does the company stand now? How has it been growing? How many employees do you have? What's the current state of everything? I mean, r- right now we are in a very good shape. We have uh, roughly 2,000 employees at Carbon Health. We just announced a $350 million kind of round a couple of days ago. And it is the fastest growing healthcare provider in the country. But it definitely was not easy. So this is, it was hard in a very different way than Udemy. At Udemy, the main challenge was that we were just kind of unknown, like immigrant entrepreneurs, right? So uh, the company was growing fast from like early days, but we just didn't know people to like uh, get funding. At Carbon, I was at this point, a founder had started a multi billion dollar company already. It wasn't hard to raise the first like seed funding. So just from my personal background, but like between 2016 and I would say 2019, especially. Like at that time, having physical locations where we provide care was something that venture capitalists passionately hated. They were like so shocked to even hear that I just thought we have to open physical locations because I was very convinced that there's no healthcare without physical locations. So you want to have virtual care, you want to have devices and consumer apps and tracking data and monitoring, but you couldn't close the loop without physical locations. People were always going to need to get care in physical environments as well. So I thought the only way to truly disrupt healthcare was called omnichannel healthcare, which is clinics, uh, virtual care devices, but you integrate them so tightly that you just remove all the patient fraction going from virtual care to clinics to clinics to getting a device attached on your arm. And then the device collects the data, you follow up virtually again. So all that loop was, I thought that was the right model, but investors 
just categorically hated brick and mortar access. They thought it was going to be capital intensive. And they also heard had heard that mass market primary care was a horrible idea because the common assumption is that there's no way to make any margins in mass market primary care. The reimbursements are very low. It was one of those things where like the like we really struggled to like fund the company. We actually yeah, ran there was. Away. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, there was there was like a massive series series B crunch as they called it going on at that time. And also, I mean, yes, it, it seems like almost impossible to convince a bunch of venture capitalists to open a bunch of essentially storefronts. So, uh, tell me what happened and how how did you end up doing it? Yeah, I mean, look uh, at that time. I'm mean, just to be transparent. Like we, we ran out of money twice until the time came where we were able to prove. The unit economics with real numbers. The, the big turn was once we started optimizing every little detail after like in a very kind of resource constrained environment, we finally made the numbers work. When, the, when we made the numbers work in roughly 2019, then I think there were some investors who were bullish about us, but they were like contrarian investors. So between some investors thinking this whole fear of physical locations is just it's just an opportunity, like because it's, it's probably like, not the right idea. That really helped. Our YouTube programs really helped. And the other thing did, which did help was, so when you are doing a purely digital business like telemedicine, what happens is you you spend more money than we do on digital like Facebook, Google ads, acquiring customers for any business through online channels from like Google and Facebook and Instagram, ends up becoming so expensive that people realize physical storefronts. Like they they bring customers as well, so like even for customer acquisition purposes, it just makes sense. So so between the fact that our numbers work, and then people by and large realize like even digital companies should actually have storefronts. Like that was the time where um, like Warby Parker started opening stores, and even it was clear that Amazon was going to build physical infrastructure. Like in this, so the industry shifted to uh, to this mindset, and also like we proved the numbers. And then, then things like flipped. And after that, like raising money and scaling this company became a lot easier. Was there a moment during one of the two times that at least that that you may have been really close on money that you thought, okay, this idea, it's just, it's just not gonna work. We're gonna have to close up. I mean, that was that was like one of every two days. Like I would oh my gosh. I, I consider that important like option because look, we were trying to do something that was not done before. So which is just take whatever Medicare pays for healthcare, give or take, like which is considered as like the baseline lowest amount you would get paid. And just claim that you can create a, provide a really premium experience with just that amount of money, right? without charging any subscriptions, without charging anything about that. So that was like not something anybody had done. And like, if I talked to 20 healthcare experts, all 20 would just argue that that's not possible. And I didn't know healthcare enough to like have a experience. I just had a hunch that like, look, my hunch was that if the tooling is so bad, if somebody fixes the tooling and just improves the design, improves the workflow, it's, it's like there's some efficiency gate to me. So, but it was it was a hunch, not a like I had zero proof of this, right? So, so the I always had to act with the assumption that this is never gonna work, right? And the numbers we had certain. Detailed numbers like retention rate, the, the patient experience, like net promoter score, that there were things like that which were like interesting and that they looked very positive. They were better than any other company's numbers, but it wasn't something that you would see in like a, a profit and loss statement, right? So it wasn't obvious from the top level. I had to just continue to double down on it and bring really senior executives and convince them that this might be possible. Uh, even like knowing that, like with the assumption that this is most like impossible, but if it is, it may be huge. That was like the working assumption, I would say, for the first uh, five years of the company. When we come back, I'll talk with Aaron about how he listens to his intuition and tackles industries that have been deemed uncool. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. 
or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You've mentioned contrarian opinions a couple times during this interview. How much of your identity is in embracing that contrarian opinion and, and running with it? I would say that's what excites me. Like I, I get excited when I have an opinion which is different than almost everybody else's opinion in the market. And sometimes like people have these unique opinions, unique insights in different two different ways. And sometimes you're very futuristic. You say uh, in 10 years, like there won't be any cars on wheels anymore. Everything is going to be flying cars. Often people have this kind of unique opinions in this type of like more futurist, like technology is going to completely disrupt everything. The type of contrarian opinion I usually have is in the opposite direction. It's more about this thing which seems somewhat simple is actually a lot more disruptive than people think. When I first started Udemy, the, 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 the contrarian view was that what we already had for online learning was just not good enough. That if you actually made it a little bit better, it could be a massive, like it could have a massive impact. So I wasn't offering any like AI replacing teachers type of idea, right? That, that's the type of idea to be honest that like VCs usually invest in, like investing in. Right. And even, even in carbon health, like, like what I was proposing wasn't like radically different. I was saying, we don't need to change the business model. Let's keep it like keep the payments exactly how 90% of the small practices get paid. We don't need to just come up with a new model. This is not AI replacing doctors. It is just that if you actually fix the tooling, it would have a thousand times more impact than, than you think it will. It was like a like a relatively short leap of faith in terms of technology advancement, but the unique opinion was how impactful it would, it would be if, if it does work. So it's really, I guess, like it's contrarian, but in a very different than way than most what like most people who label themselves contrarian have a like very different type of thinking than I, I think I do. I, I I try to find this this these technologies which are not good enough today, but they're almost good enough that if you actually put the last pieces in, it could have a massive impact. So like doing a thing a little bit better <laughs> could make a whole system disruptive. I mean, that, that's yeah. That, yeah, to be honest, like if you actually want to like have impact, that's what you have to look for, right? Because if you start a company, you have at most five years before you have to prove real, real world impact, right? So, so you have to find things which are almost there, but not quite there. Uh, and often those are the type of things that investors lost interest about. Between 2000 and 2009, investors had a lot of interest in online learning. And by the time we started Udemy, they had lost all the appetite on online learning concept. They had marked as a kind of failed industry. Same way with like this digital health was hot back at one point, but like people had lost interest. They thought there's a lot of regulations. There's all these other issues. So they thought it was like, impossible and like miscellaneous incentives. So they thought like they said essentially had, everybody had lost interest in it. And I, I, I usually like to come when everybody else loses interest. But, but it's just like you, you push it three more years and it's going to start working. And honestly, I got lucky in a way for at Carbon Health as well, where two, three years after we started the company, all of a sudden, like I mean, 2020, it became the, the hottest industry ever. And all of, like nowadays, everybody's looking for the next like technology-enabled primary care company. So like we started when it was very uncool and like had no hype, but it eventually got the hype when it started working. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you had a bunch of clinics open by the time the the pandemic started. Um, can you talk a little bit about how um, Carbon Health responded to the pandemic, both internally and to its customers and what that this, you know, last 16 months of time has been like for you? In early 2020, like we had just started this what I would consider as the rapid expansion. So we had seven clinics sometime in uh, in 2019, and we're opening. We had like this large, like group of clinics that we're, we were going to launch. And in January, our physicians started like kind of following the the pandemic in China. So we started having some meetings about well, whether this could come to United States. Um, and in February, before like this was considered a pandemic in the United States, we had this first meeting where we just said, let's just make the assumption that this is going to devastate the whole world. 
if that happens, what would we wish we, we were doing today? It's kind of hard to remember all like that uh, early back. That was a time where like honestly, federal government like just didn't even, even care about this, right? Even CDC was like, making really kind of lightweight attempts. Was like they were not really doing anything, anything serious. We started with the simple things like we be, we have this pre-appointment triage system. We added some uh, checking for COVID type of risk factors, um, and then we started. I, I made this like list of ten super crazy ideas that like. We didn't think we were like realistic ideas, but like just kind of listed them. And we launched this whole pre-appointment triaging changes two days later. Like I get a message. We had at least two patients that they, who were flying from Wuhan, China, directed to Bay Area and came to our clinic with cold-like symptoms. We realized this is just, this is just here. Like we, we haven't announced this is a pandemic, but this must be like in the community already. If we just started seeing this like a couple of days after we added this systems. So, and we started tracking these people that we were worried about, like remotely, we asked them to stay at home, not come to clinics, we would like check back with them on a daily basis or the, through the, the platform. But CDC didn't even offer testing to anybody who had not had a like travel history in Wuhan, China. And one of these patients uh, that we couldn't get tested because again, it was, CDC was the only place to do to testing was later in an uh, ER in ICU, and then they were tested eventually, and he was the first uh, first approved community spread patient in California. But then in reality, like we were very sure that it was already in the, in the, in the community for a month at that point. We, I think we did two this very seriously from the beginning, and we decided to pivot the entire company like in the beginning of the March of 2020 to respond to the pandemic until it's under control. And we thought that this was going to be a six-month period. But meanwhile, all those 10 crazy ideas I had listed the first day, we have done all of them and, and even more. At-home testing is for the first time in the country, so people didn't have to come to clinic to get tested. We built this mobile testing vehicles, which, would, which went under so communities in California. We saw 20-25% positivity rates like in these farming towns like in central California, like we built a program for companies with essential employees to operate safely. Like we built a co- like a, a pro- clinical program for COVID positive patients. So like if you do not, don't go to ER, there's no other way like for people who, who have long COVID symptoms to get go back to normal life. So, I mean, we, that we did, I think, 1.3 million tests uh, at Carbon. And in 2000, in the January of 2021, then we decided that vaccine rollout was going to be a disaster. So it was kind of obvious to us from our vintage, vintage point. We decided to just build a much more efficient vaccine platform, vaccine rollout system. And we essentially partnered with the city of Los Angeles to run the largest vaccine operation in the country. So we have done 1.5 million vaccines in that operation. So we ran Dodger Stadium, which is the single largest mass vaccination site. So it, it is, I think we have done all those really crazy things that, that truly surprised the, the community as a whole. And that also what ended up working as a proof that tightly integrating technology operations and company culture was like a disruptive change. Because it was like clear that like just giving a piece of software to an existing health system to do type of things like this would just not work, right? They're too slow, they don't have the right culture. But when your culture of like we have to be in the front lines and we have the right operational efficiency and the technology platform powering it, you can move at a speed that no other healthcare provider can. Yeah, yeah. What what is the culture? I mean, does the company, whether you're you know working in a clinic facing patients as a practitioner or uh, as a developer in an in an office or at home somewhere, like does there is there a coherent kind of culture to Carbon Health? I actually wrote this like in my Evernote back like seven days seven years years ago. So a couple of years before I've been starting a company, I said I'm going to start a new company with these four values. So the the, the, the most dominant one is uh, we call this like assume karma exists. This idea that if you do the right thing consistently, even if you cannot prove how you will get commercial value out of it, eventually you get disproportionate rewards from it. Just like doing the right thing consistently has disproportionate rewards that you may not be able to calculate. And this is the part like this is the, I'm not very data driven. I just, I, some, I often like to work with the instincts and insights. Like when we started doing these things to help our communities during the pandemic, 
we lost a ton of money. Like they're not commercial sound projects. And it was obviously not a sustainable thing. We always assumed that eventually would put the pandemic under control. So they were not even recurring businesses in any way. So it made no business sense to do it. And at that time, all the other providers decided to pull back, shut down clinics and try to wait until the, the pandemic is put under control by the government. All those rewards we got out, out of our great work was just, we just didn't know how they would come in. But like somehow all the great work we did eventually came back to the company. So that's, that's really the, the, the most prominent value. And the second one I would say is like respecting the craft, really respecting what doctors do, nurses do, designers do, engineers do, like customer support people do. So because there are really 40, 50 different professions that make up carbon health. So we really respect each person's thing. We, do, we are not this Silicon Valley company that thinks AI can replace all the other jobs and everything should be about data and technology and process. Like we just, we truly respect every single craft, even though sometimes we improve those crafts with technology and better design, but like we, we do deeper respect. So I think that that culture is probably, and I would say the last thing is, there's an unstoppable passion towards helping whenever we can help. And as a healthcare company, that's, that's a useful thing to have because that's what you do in a daily basis. But when there are fires, when there's other issues, our, our team cannot, our, our team at this point expects me to tell them how we are going to help. Yeah, that's great. That it, it seems like such a fulfilling kind of balanced mission with having those three yeah. tenets. No, it's it's very fulfilling, and I think we feel very lucky that all those things we do because, like, just honestly, out of our passion, eventually makes the company stronger and bigger and like more successful. It allows us to hire certain people that would never join the comp like a company our size otherwise, and they improve things. Like we we have been lucky enough to see rewards of things we do in a more kind of missionary perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You said earlier that, you know, your your breed of, of kind of counterintuitive thinking is, is to kind of technically tweak one small thing and change an industry. But there's another way of looking at what you've done, which is you emigrated from Turkey, came to Silicon Valley, identified a completely broken industry, education in America, said, okay, let me try my hand at that. And then you identified another one, healthcare. Like this is this huge problem that, you know, so many Americans don't have adequate healthcare or could face financial ruin if they make the right, wrong move in in their own healthcare. Um, what's the next industry you're going to take on? Or or I guess I'm, I'm looking for like, do you have advice for other entrepreneurs who are looking to put a foot into a big established industry where they, they find something broken? Look, uh, look, I think the... It's, it's somewhat obvious, right? The, the three things that are truly broken in the United States is like education, healthcare, and housing. You don't have to be an expert and it doesn't require a lot of research. It, it's just those three things are truly broken. There, everything else like could be better, like food delivery could be better and some people have improved it and transportation has been improved. But there are a lot of things to improve, but the truly broken ones are really, really education, housing, healthcare. And healthcare is probably the biggest one. Housing is probably second biggest, and education is actually the third biggest. But these are very scary industries to work on, and they're very regulated. Like so, a lot of techies argue that the reasons these things have not been improved is is just regulations. That's actually, I would say, my most contrarian opinion, especially in Silicon Valley, is that it's not the regulations. Yes, the regulations can be annoying here and there, but these industries just happen to be more complex than anything else like tech companies have traditionally worked on. Healthcare delivery is fundamentally the most complicated service industry. Compare getting a healthcare service from a doctor, like a primary care doctor, to getting a ride from a car. Like I request a car, it comes to me, picks me up, and then I pay them, and like we don't have to see each other again. Like that's a that's a reasonable short form service versus in a healthcare setting, you have to have obviously insurance and payments and prescriptions and labs and medical imaging and referrals. And you have to have a long-term relationship. Like the medical records have to be stored for 10 years and every form of care you receive is actually relevant to other forms of care you are taking, right? So these are not even independent forms of interaction. So it is a much more complicated service industry so it, it just requires like a ridiculous amount of R&D investments that honestly, people haven't invest, made those investments. 
I like simply I just don't buy this whole regular regulatory constraint argument. I think like if you just do a better job, you can you can just crack pretty much any industry. I love it. Just do a better job. Um, <laughs> that's great. What what kind of innovations do you think we'll see in in healthcare and in delivering delivering healthcare over the next decade? Do you have any just crazy audacious goals yourself or any predictions for the future of the industry? There's there's a Phrase I, I, like I don't know whether I coined it or not, but I call it omnichannel healthcare. So I've been popularizing that keyword. The challenge we are seeing is healthcare has been fragmented into a lot of disjointed forms of service over the last thirty years. So thirty years ago, there was one provider that you received care from them, and nowadays there are primary care offices, there are urgent care locations, and there's telemedicine, there are consumer applications, there are connected devices, and so I mean, there's more like retail clinics and employer clinics. Healthcare delivery has been fragmented in a way that's not good for the patient because now the patient has to figure out when they take telemedicine or they have to come to a clinic. If they do telemedicine and the virtual care is not a good fit and they have to come to a clinic for some lab testing, like they just have to navigate this whole thing. And that's a horrible patient experience that I think is the biggest, like most broken thing. What I call omnichannel healthcare is taking different forms of care, like virtual clinics, pop-ups, devices, and really integrate them in a way where there's no friction for patients. But patients should just say, like, I have this need, and every next step should be extremely obvious. Uh, so that, that, that is not easy. Like, this type of transformation has happened in retail industry. So if you look at companies like Target and Starbucks and even Chipotle, like Walmart, like, I mean, at this point, I think 46% of all Chipotle orders are happening digitally, right? So they, they have now finally merged online and offline deeply. So, so we need the same thing in healthcare, except in healthcare use cases, it's 10 times more complicated, right? So uh, at Starbucks, ordering at home and picking in the store is not all that complicated. So, but getting a device, taking the data, going to the clinic, like, healthcare use case requires a lot more R&D to really kind of nail. And I think the next 10 years is going to be about us completely making those different forms of care like feel seamlessly integrated with each other. Mm -hmm. And getting everyone to use them. <laughs> um, I think uh, removing the friction yeah. is how you, you get people use it. Like, like people don't use consumer applications or like devices because they don't tie back into how they get care from their primary care provider, right? So like when it's disconnected, nobody's going to use it or like very few people are going to, but like when you can seamlessly integrate them, I think essentially a lot of tech is going to become mainstream. So devices have been around for a long time, but they were not good enough. In the last couple of years, they've finally been good enough. This is like a similar, like they needed the last couple of years of extra work to deeply integrate to, with the care platform of the providers. And then they are going to be with mainstream. So interesting. So looking back at, at your career, what advice do you wish that you either had gotten or had followed in the early days? What do you know now that you didn't know then? What I now know is the conviction you have is the most critical thing that you have. And conviction is not just blindly believing in something. Conviction is just knowing that there's a chance it, like it might be true. Because you have to always assume all new ideas are just like wrong. And every time you try to calculate or you try to do research about your idea, like every good new idea is going to, the research is never going to be positive. Like you talk to experts, you talk to look at data, everything's going to tell you that your novel idea is bad. And really what you have to do is just like have the patience to... Just go until you, you yourself get convinced that it's a bad idea. It's a bad direction. Like maybe you learn something that changed your thinking on the way. Uh, but the type of like understanding that like there's no way to validate a good idea. If you try to validate it, every novel idea is going to look, look bad. Aaron, what is, what's your goal for two years from now in terms of the growth of Carbon Health? We have 80 clinics right now. And we had eight clinics two years ago. Probably end of the next year, we'll have 300 locations around the country, and we will be in uh, almost 20 different kind of like, uh, regions, growing the nation, the footprint nationwide. So we'll become the first nationwide healthcare provider in the next couple of years. And then the second kind of critical expansion is going deep on omnichannel care, where we have disease management, 
programs for diabetes and hypertension and mental health, and which are deeply integrated to your primary care. So we are expanding the services to be longitudinal and very proactive in a way that, that leverages hardware in a way that has never been done before. Thank you, Aaron, so much for joining me today. Thank, thank you very much, Kristen. It was a very fun conversation. speaking with Aaron, what I'm left thinking about is not just one thing, but rather how many really fascinating lessons he shared. Usually there's one major takeaway from this podcast, maybe two. But Aaron said about six different things that could have been headlines. He spoke about how he values intuition over data. And he explained one of the themes of his career, taking a tiny thing that's malfunctioning about a big, boring industry and fixing it in order to lead to disruption. He talked about assuming that when you're starting up something audacious, that it just won't work. And he said that while running a big staff of 2,000 people, he has learned to respect the craft of every specialist, of every department. And I could go on. But I think when you look at all those bits of wisdom together, you can see a picture of a man who has really big visions for altering broken industries. And he does so by chipping away just one little bit at a time to achieve change. And he has a humility that means he doesn't take himself or his big ideas too seriously. I like that he assumes it won't work. But when it does, he dedicates himself to it fully. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you liked what you heard today, we have a really small favor to ask. Please hit subscribe or follow wherever you are listening so you don't miss our next episode of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend who would like our show, please just send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have any ideas for founders you'd love to hear from, drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com or you can let me know directly on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who likes his healthcare like he likes his Chipotle with extra guac, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.